Well, please pray with me and uh, as Michael said, hopefully we can expand this very, very, very important chapter of our Bible. Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning knowing that you are uh, all-powerful, all-sovereign. You are the ever-present, all-knowing God that has called us out of the world and into your kingdom. Father God, as we open your word now, as we open this chapter of this this remarkable situation where you, the living God, uh, comes and creates a covenant uh, with your people, Father, we pray that you help us to understand what's happening here. We pray that we will honour you with our ears and our hearts as we listen. And Father God, we pray that as we go from here, we will be comforted and assured in your promises that you have made for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think at the heart of any healthy relationship is trust. And at the heart of any broken relationship is usually broken trust. And trust is usually built on promises which are kept or not kept. I think it's true of almost all relationships, whether you're uh, buying something at the shop and someone's effectively promised to give you uh, a good uh, operating product, uh, or whether you're dealing with family or friends, or whether you're uh, dealing with uh, the most intimate of relationships in your life. Well, at the end of 2011, I'd finished Bible college, and in 2012, uh, I was certain that God wanted me in the northwest of Australia, and so we, uh, so we bought uh, a car and we tripped around Australia. Now, we were going to trip around for three or four months. That's the plan. Uh, the problem is, is our car had just died and we had very little money, but we wanted a four-wheel drive to get off-road and to get us up to the north. Uh, so we went, uh, so we prayed, and then we went car shopping. Uh, we needed a car worth about $10,000. We had around about $5,000 to spend. So we prayed again, and we headed to Parramatta, and, uh, and we spent the day walking around the car yards at Parramatta and we got through it all and obviously there's nothing there. We weren't going to get anything. And just at the last uh, time, we went around this corner and there was this little car yard there and in that car yard was the car that I think would have been perfect for us. But of course it was going to be too much money. I trudged up, I looked inside on the little thing and it said $5,500. And I was like, wow, hang on a minute, there must be something terribly wrong with this car. Anyway, we looked over it, I looked over it, I took it for a test drive, couldn't find anything wrong, low kilometres, the whole bit, it was everything that we needed and I thought, wow, God's really provided. And so we, I signed the contract, paid a $500 deposit, even negotiated him down to $5,200, got two new tyres and six months of rego. I was like, Wow. How good's this? Uh, went home, and about 6 o'clock that night, he said he'd call us when it was ready to be picked up. He called, and I'm thinking, wow, that was quick. And he says, oh, I'm really sorry, we can't sell you the car. And I went, well, I'm really sorry, but I signed a contract. And he said, well, we cannot sell you the car for that money. Uh, we accidentally put the price we paid on the car. 
Now I'm from a business background, so I'm starting to think through all the strategies I could use to possibly uh, get this car. Uh, And then he hung up on me. And I looked on his website that night, and yes, the internet was uh, the internet was invented then. Uh, <clears throat> I looked on the website, and he had relisted it for nine thousand dollars, and I was really upset. Anyway, next morning I called the office of Fair Trading, and I say, "Look, this is a situation. I'd like you to get involved and enforce my contract." And they said, "Well." Actually, that's not how it works. The contract isn't really enforceable. And I went, what do you mean? And, he, and it turns out that uh, the only thing that he had, the only penalty he had to pay was if whatever we would have suffered when we broke the contract. So because I paid $500 deposit, all he had to do was give me that back and pay me another $500. But I wanted the car. And I come off that phone and I went, oh, I don't think this is any good and then I realized I had information this guy didn't have and so I called him and I said well look I understand that you're going to lose money on this car and I understand that uh, I don't want to do the wrong thing by you uh, and I don't want to get the office of fair trading involved which is true because it wouldn't have been good for me Uh, And I said, well, how about I give you what you paid for the car, plus I'll pay for the rego and the the tyres. How does that sound? And he goes, well, yeah, I don't want the Office of Fair Trading involved. All right, we can can do that. That's that's fine. And he was apologetic and everything, which was wonderful for a car salesman. Anyway, so I got my car. But the point I'm telling you at the moment is the moment that he reneged on his promise... The trust was broken because the moment that we we renege on our promises, we break our trust. And the problem with that is that at the heart of every relationship, whether it's a simple transaction like that or whether it's in a, a marriage or whatever it is, is the promises that we make. And the point is that when we break these promises, we lose trust in the rest of the people around us and how we navigate the world. And I think all of us, when we become adults in particular, but even when we're kids, we start learning that people are going to break promises. Their word doesn't mean anything. And in fact, a handshake doesn't mean anything. And it turns out contracts don't even mean anything. This is why we have an office of fair trading. This is why we have uh, contract law. This is why we have a whole legal system uh, for people to use in order to sue each other and and to try to work out, well, whose promises should be upheld. And this is no different than in Abram's day. Someone's word was only as good as their character and humanity so far in Genesis as we come to chapter 15 has shown that their promises aren't very good at all. Just speak to Abel and Cain. Just speak into the Tower of Babel. Just speak to Noah. Just speak to every... Just that It's been this cycle of perpetual problem going through. So when we come to chapter 15, we encounter Abram and God in this dialogue. And at the heart of this encounter is actually Abram's distrust of someone's word. 
So even when God makes his promises to Abram or to us, we often find ourselves asking a question. Because we've been hurt so many times, we say, how can I trust what God says he will do? See, when the darkest night in our life comes, how can I be assured that he will never leave me nor forsake me like he says? When I've lost my job and I'm facing financial ruin, how can I trust him when he says all things work for the good of those who love him? When those who were meant to protect us and care for us break that trust in our childhood or even beyond that, how can we hold firm to the promise of an inheritance to come that will never perish, spoil or fade? How can we deem and be sure that God is trustworthy? See, that's the question that's really being answered today. How can I trust God when he says he will do something? And the passage begins with the word of the Lord coming to Abram. We're told after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very or exceedingly great reward. Like so many encounters with God in the Bible, it begins with, do not be afraid. We have it in Isaiah. We have it constantly through. Because when you encounter the living God, it should bring a healthy fear to you as you come face to face with his holiness. But the Lord says to Abram, I am your shield. I am your protector. I am the one who wraps the protection around you. And I am the holder of your exceedingly great reward. But Abram goes on to say in verse 2, Sovereign Lord, acknowledging that God is in control of all things. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram has said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. You see, Abram had been blessed with all the riches he could ever want. He was a very wealthy man. He's just conquered four kings uh, and, and effectively had... Uh, kings who he had saved bow down to him and offer him all their goods. He has become powerful. He's become, his name has even become uh, well known in that land. But he says, that's not what I want. How can you say that this is a great reward when the only reward that I ever want is a child? Why is it that the only thing that I want, and you can't give it to me. I'm an old man. I'm beyond children. And now a servant in my house is going to inherit all this. What's the point? Well, the Lord responds, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. See, Abram had heard this before. If you remember to last week in chapter 13, as he's saying, you will be give, you, this is all the land I'm giving you. And, giving you. and then he sa- um, God says to Abram, and your descendants will be like the dust of the ground. See, back in chapter 12, he'd said that you will have, be a great uh, people or a family. 
It would be like a dust of the ground. Now he takes him outside and reinforces to him. Now I hope you've had the chance to sleep under the stars in the outback. Because I've slept on a tarp in the Simpson Desert amongst three other deserts. And I tell you, until you sleep on a tarp when there's absolutely no civilization for hundreds of kilometers, when you lay there and you look at those stars, what's remarkable is you just start seeing more of them and more of them. And it's like this never-ending revealing of more and more stars. It is impossible to count them. There are billions and billions of stars we now know. And they just keep coming and coming when you are in the darkest night. The stars shine the brightest. And that is what your descendants will be, Abram. See, what appears impossible to us is possible with God. And the response of Abram is the heart of what the gospel is. Verse 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Now there is possibly no greater or more important verse in the Bible. This is the verse Paul uses in Romans to explain the gospel in all its fullness. See, his argument is that justification, being made right with God, comes by faith, not by works. And he refers to Abram. He says here, he says, look, it says here in Genesis chapter 15, 6, that Abram was credited with righteousness before he did anything, simply because he believed the promises of God. See, the circumcision that comes in chapter 17 is a work that is later. This is a covenant and a promise that God makes, and it's the belief and the faith that Abram has that credits him with the righteousness of God, which enables him to be made right with God so that he can have an eternal future with God. This is Paul's argument. When I first became a Christian, I never understood this for quite a while. And I remember the minister asking some basic questions as I sat down with him. And I said, well, he asked me, well, how are people saved? What do you think? And I said, well, in the Old Testament, they were saved by observing the law and by the sacrificial system. And in the New Testament, they were saved by faith because Jesus had come. And I think many people believe that. That's not the case. You see, Abram in his faith and in his faith in God's promises is made right. He is saved by faith. And that is affirmed and, 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 and sealed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So whether you're before Jesus or after Jesus, it's your faith in God that makes you right with God. And that is justification by faith. It was for Abram and it is for us. You see, God has reinforced his promises here. He now, in, uh, about descendants, he's now going to reinforce to Abram his promises about land. Have a look at verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. He's already told him that twice. But this time... Abram responds, Sovereign Lord, how can I know 
that I will gain possession of it. Isn't that fascinating? He's gone from believing God and having it credited to him as righteousness to immediately going, well, how am I meant to know that? Sums up our faith, doesn't it? doesn't take long for us to start questioning and we come back to that big question at the beginning how can i know god will keep his promises how can i know and this is what abram's going through i think at this point abram's gone through a great psychological and spiritual upheaval he's been told to leave his country he left He ends up in a land and he's blessed and he's with Lot. There's not enough land, so he gives Lot the choice last week and last chapter and and Lot goes down into the cities near Sodom. Then they're conquered and Lot's taken away and now Abram's gone into battle. He's just come back from battling against nations, losing men, fighting. He's an old man. Sorry for those of you who are... But relative, his body isn't quite doing as well as it used to do. And he's left everything and here he is. And he's just suffered, uh, he's suffering uh, war and, and conflict when he thought he was being taken to a land of peace. And here he is. And I think he's just saying, Lord, how am I know that I'm going to get this possession? There's people fighting over this stuff. It's a question we all have in our life of faith. Lord, how can I know you will never leave me nor forsake me as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death of this diagnosis? Lord, how can I know you will raise me to everlasting life with a new body? Because all I'm doing is suffering in this body. Lord, how can I know that my sacrifices for the kingdom of God will have eternal rewards? Lord, how can I know that you will wipe every tear away from my eye? Lord, how can I know that my enemies will not prevail against me? Lord, how can I know... That true justice will be delivered on the day of the Lord where I am vindicated and my, my attackers or my abusers are judged justly. Lord, how can I know that even when those around me break their promises that you are in control? This is Abram's question. This is our question. We want assurance. How can we know? The world looks at us and scoffs. Huh, where is your God now? See, where is our assurance in the darkest of nights? How can we know God will keep his word, his promises? Well, I really feel for Abram in this next verse because he's just asked this question and God goes, well, here's my shopping list. Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram. Now, each of those have to be three years old along with a dove and a pigeon. Sure, I'll do what you want, Lord. And so Abram brings these to God. But he then cuts them in two and he arranges the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he doesn't cut in half. Birds of prey come, the vultures start coming. 
Abram has lined these two halves up as a path. Down come the vultures. He's sweeping them away. The sun is setting. And then Abram falls into a deep sleep, verse 12. And we're told a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Or in other words, a horror. A horror has come over him. The Lord says to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. See, overwhelmed with terror, Abram is suffering his dark night of the soul. Abram's in despair. I don't know if you've ever felt that spiritual, spiritual darkness, that you cling on to God somehow, but you wonder whether it's worth it and whether you want to keep going. Well, this is the darkness that Abram's going through. How can I know? This feels more than I can bear. Then the Lord gives Abram more detail. He says, your descendants will be strangers in their own land, mistreated. He says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You see, God foretells what's about to happen through the rest of Genesis and into Exodus. Slavery in Egypt, salvation from Pharaoh, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness for 38 years, two years camped outside of the promised land and not even Moses gets to go in. But I will give you the land. You know the promises of God don't always and the answers to God's, your prayers don't always happen in your life. We are living in an eternal reality. It's a finite reality in this world, but God's, God's purposes go beyond that. We want everything now in our culture. Well, Abram's told, look, you're not going to know the land as your inheritance, but your descendants will. But you will have peace, Abram. And I think we mustn't overlook what he says there. You will. You will have peace, you will go to your ancestors in peace. What great assurance he's giving him in his dark night of the soul. You will have peace. So we're asking, how can we know God will keep his promises? Well, we finally come to the answer to that. After 16 verses of leading up to it, and it may be a peculiar verse for you, but I think verse 17, you should hold on to with all your heart, soul and mind as you go through your dark night of the soul. We are told when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land.
from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites and Jebusites. Now, I'm not sure if you realise it, but through faith you are a descendant of Abraham. It is by faith that you have been saved. We call Father Abraham our father of the faith because we are grafted into his covenantal promises through the faith that God has given us. And are we trying to go back to this land? No, because the land goes beyond this, a land of revelation, a land of a new heavens and a new earth, a land in which we are promised. See, we are looking to a hope that goes beyond here, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. And I tell you, when you go through the dark night of your soul, you come back to this verse. You see, the smoking fire pot with a blazing torch is God's theophany. Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews... He refers to God in all of this. He is the consuming fire. Why? Because God's often revealing himself as fire, a burning bush to Moses. And here to Abram in a smoking fire pot as a blazing torch. And God goes through those pieces of animals. And it is a cutting covenant It is a sacrificial covenant of animals that have been killed foreseeing the sacrificial covenant that will be given to Moses. But neither of those are the fulfillment of how these promises are sealed. Because there is another sacrificial covenant, another sacrifice that needs to be made that is the only sacrifice that will enable our faith to seal our future with the Lord. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is a consuming fire because he is a God of justice. He is a consuming fire because he is a God of promise. He is a consuming fire because he will hold to those promises. And we know that. How do we know that his word's true? Well, he's come and he's sealed it with this covenantal contract with Abram, our father. We should have taken him at his word. All all we needed was his word, but we don't trust his word. So he says, by grace, I'm going to give you a covenant. You never forget that I've come and I've walked through these animal parts to show you that I am promising. And if I promise, it will not fail. And so when you are grappling to try to figure out whether this is all true and when the world's looking at us and laughing at us, oh, where's your God now? Well, we look to these promises and it points us to the time where Jesus comes and God sacrifices his one and only son to seal that imperfect, perfect redemption, to redeem us, to buy us back from our sin, to our slavery to that sin. You see, this is a wonderful verse to remember that God came in a theophany and moved through that fire pot to say, I will never give up on my promises. And we can now see the Lord Jesus hanging on that cross, sealing that. God demonstrating his own love for us in this, that while while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
See, and what we can know is that he will wipe every tear from your eye. He will ensure that all things work for the good of those who love him. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. And when he says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so fear no evil. For my rod and my staff, they will comfort you. I lead you to green pastures. Don't give up. I am with you. And that is the great love of our Lord. That is the great joy, even in the darkest of nights, because he's making everything new. And we are going to that promised land and he has an inheritance and he's preparing a room for you. So never let go of these promises that he's made. We're about to sing a hymn. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art.